But what I find is if you ask your community for input and you give them a structure to give the input, like a survey or something, people respond beautifully. Um, and last week on our, our Zoom campus conversation, I invited the chair of the board of trustees to sit in uh, and listen to the conversation. And she was just so impressed um, by the very thorough and respectful conversation uh, that we had. And we'll keep doing that because um, everybody likes that sense of being connected to each other. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is the podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders to help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. You're about to watch another episode of Start the Week with Wisdom, which for those of you who are at home, if you have not seen this before, these are weekly episodes where we conduct an interview with a sitting college president or chancellor, and we want to talk to them about how they're navigating the challenge of this moment. We're in a really unique time, and we want to focus on their leadership and unpack how they are making decisions, how they are navigating, and hopefully it will leave you with a sense of optimism, a bit inspired, and give you a bit of hope. And I'm Rick Seltzer. Projects Editor at Inside Higher Ed. And this week, we are delighted, absolutely delighted, and I'm really excited to be able to have a conversation with Trinity Washington University President Patricia McGuire. President McGuire has led Trinity since 1989. So uh, let's start by asking uh, President McGuire, how are you holding up uh, as, as we go through these uh, crazy weeks in the fall? I'm doing just fine, thanks for asking. You know, I'm a planner by heart. Uh, I have lived through many crises uh, as Trinity's president for now in my 31st year. Um, this is certainly the greatest challenge I've ever faced, and yet it's a wonderful opportunity to think about how communities function, how people work together, how we can create change that's healthy for our students and faculty. Um, so I'm actually uh, kind of excited about uh, the opportunities that this crisis presents uh, to think about our future and where we're going. I'm very sorry for those, of course, who are ill. Um, fortunately, thank God, we have not had any cases on campus so far. We've had some members of our community be ill with COVID, um, but very few. So uh, in all of this and in expressing, um, saying that I'm fine, I'm also mindful of those who are suffering and I think about them a lot. But thanks for asking. So... I'm curious that, you know, you've led for a very long time. You've learned a lot of lessons about leadership and, and inspiring people, all the normal le leadership lessons prior to this. But I'm curious about what it's like, what's different about leading in this moment and what has it taught you about leadership that you don't think that you knew before? I think this moment has stripped away all of the artifice of leadership. Uh, all of the ceremonial garb. We can't have ceremonies anymore. We're all here on Zoom every single day. Uh, I believe it has made leadership, not only my own leadership style, uh, but I think others um, more humble, I hope, uh, a little more humane. I put a great deal of emphasis now on communication almost daily with the campus community. Uh, I send out emails. Um, this semester, I have started something called Campus Conversations Every Thursday at four o'clock, we open up Zoom to everybody on campus uh, and they can join, they can ask questions, they can share ideas. Um, and that for me as a leader uh, is teaching me that uh, our community and our students, our faculty and staff 
They want connection. They want connection with the leader, but not with the cap and gown and regalia and maces, um, just sitting here trying to understand what's happening. None of us have been through this before. I think what's um, part of this pandemic uh, that makes us all very humble, there has been no playbook. Nobody went to school to learn how to manage a college or university or a country or the world through a pandemic. We're all learning as we go along and we learn from each other. And to me, that is both refreshing and energizing. And I'm learning as much from students, faculty and staff uh, as, as I can uh, and others in the city. We work closely with our city partners as well. So it's a dynamic opportunity for genuine, authentic leadership to be real human beings uh, and not to live behind artifice. That communication and that chain of communication is very interesting, especially right now. Is there anything that comes to mind as far as uh, something that when you heard from students or faculty or staff, something that surprised you, something that maybe they wanted you to be doing differently or emphasizing differently than, than you would have expected? Oh yeah, there were uh, a number of things. And of course, um, in the springtime we learned, you know, it was just amazing to think that uh, there was one day in the spring when we were all here and doing our usual business and two or three days later, everybody was gone and suddenly learning online. Um, and I learned a couple of things. First of all, Trinity, like many small historic liberal arts colleges, um, we did not have a big online presence. And I thought this was just going to be terrible. I, I was um, probably more reluctant in March uh, than I am today to say that online is part of our future. But one of the things I learned was that actually um, quite a few of our students liked being online. And once our faculty jumped into the pool, they liked being online too. Uh, we spent some money this summer to get the faculty all in a very intensive training program about how to be online really, really well. They loved it. I didn't expect them to love summer training, but they really did. Uh, and they're doing very well right now. So that was one piece. The second piece that really kind of surprised me um, was the number of students who actually did want to come back at least to live in residence on campus. And the fact that even though everybody was enjoying being online, they really missed each other's presence. Uh, so this fall, we have uh, about 175 residents, uh, which is um, not all that abnormal for us. We're a small institution. Um, we have some classes face-to-face, -face, and I'm seeing more and more faculty, staff, students around campus, um, and they're very glad to see each other, but they also like the fact that it can be flexible. So they can be here some days, they can be home some days, hybrid really works. That's also true for staff. Um, staff uh, really like having rotational schedules, some remote, some in the office. So learning how to be present to each other in both live and remote settings and learning that we can like that uh, was surprising for me and surprising for others, I think. Um, and it means that we're going to have some permanent change going forward. There's no going back to March 10th. Everything after March 10th, 2020 is going to be different permanently. That's helpful. I'm curious, uh, as a leader, most of the time, to ensure that you're not just surrounded by people who are yes people and who just tell you what you want to hear, it's really important for you to be able to have those kind of unexpected conversations, check-ins with people. It's like the random hallway conversation, the beginning and end of the meeting. Uh, you know, for, for, for a lot of faculty, it's the beginning and end of the class when you can have some chit-chat. 
but that's difficult to have right now. So I'm just wondering as a leader to make sure you're getting really in like the full picture of where people are beyond mm -hmm. the formal channels. Are there any things that you're doing to make sure that you're kind of getting still that input uh, that helps you feel like you have a firm understanding of where everyone in the institution is? is yeah, um, we've used a couple of things and, and I've always put a high premium on just being open and accessible. I mean, my door is always open. Um, I've always uh, been a direct communicator, whether it's going to uh, basketball or soccer games and, and being with the students or walking down the faculty corridor and, and talking to them. Um, but since the pandemic started, several things. One, one of the things I realized um, back in the spring, um, people were so scared and so weary and hated being cooped up at home. Um, we did some fun stuff. I was, I was then doing daily emails to the campus community. Um, one of the things I do as, as uh, my little escape from reality is I do wildlife photography. Um, so back in the spring, I did a bird contest. I, I called it the Backyard Bird Contest. Uh, and I said, go out every day for two weeks and identify all the birds you see and post their pictures online. Um, and people really got into that. They sent me their pictures. I posted them on my blog. It was a great deal of fun. Um, and through that fun, um, of course, we were building uh, a communication patterns and sense of community. And I would hear from students who I'd never heard from before sending me their little pictures of robins and cardinals. Uh, we then did something similar with recipes. And I still haven't published the cookbook, but we're going to need to publish our cookbook uh, that I promised. Um, then later on, we got more serious. Um, we do a lot of surveys. So we surveyed the campus uh, back in the spring about how they were doing and and how we would do the reopening plan. We took a lot of input from the campus community for reopening. Uh, more recently, just last week, I conducted a survey um, for our students uh, about how many of them have children and how many of them have family responsibilities and how that is weighing on them during the pandemic. The results were quite stunning. About half of our students have children uh, across all degree levels. About 30% of our traditional undergrads have children. Um, and how they're coping with trying to homeschool their kids while they're also Trinity students and also working. Um, it's very interesting, the balancing acts. But what I find is if you ask your community for input and you give them a structure to give the input, like a survey or something, people respond beautifully. Um, and last week on our, our Zoom campus conversation, I invited the chair of the Board of Trustees to sit in. Uh, and listen to the conversation. And she was just so impressed um, by the very thorough and respectful conversation uh, that we had. And we'll keep doing that because um, everybody likes that sense of being connected to each other. Now, you said two things to open this conversation that I think are really interesting paired with each other. Um, one is, of course, the listening. The other is the, the emphasis on planning. Um, and I think it's a relatively uncertain time for many college leaders, at least that's what they tell me. So how do you plan in such uncertainty and how do you balance short-term planning with long-term planning and still kind of listening to what your, your team or your students need in the moment? Yeah, well, uh, none of us has a crystal ball and we have no idea how long this pandemic's gonna last. Um, but the first thing you have to do as a planner is to read voraciously 
uh, and understand how to analyze um, all of the all of the tea leaves. Uh, and I think uh, we're going to be in this um, pandemic moment for at least another year, probably based on everything I'm seeing. Um, the second thing you have to do is to see what everybody else is doing. I, I read the higher ed news voraciously. I read inside higher ed and all that other media. Um, I talk to my colleagues in the consortium of universities here in Washington. We have 17 institutions in our consortium. I talk to other college presidents, trying to learn what's everybody thinking, what's everybody doing. That's, that is part of planning. It's the environmental scan. Um, then I also know what we can do because of our institutional characteristics that are probably going to be different from what Howard University across the reservoir or Georgetown does because they're bigger, they're different institutions. So when we were doing our planning uh, for the fall semester, um, we knew because we're smaller in size and take a different approach, uh, that we could have some students back on campus, that we could do some face-to-face -face classes successfully. Uh, and we've done so, and, and uh, there's been no episode of upset uh, about that. We, we go about our business pretty quietly and it, it just works for us. Longer term, the other thing I do is I look at crises like the pandemic and I ask myself, what do we learn from this moment? You're always learning. You can never say you have a crisis that you don't learn from. The same was true back with 9-11, which was probably the worst day I ever experienced prior to uh, this pandemic. Um, what do we learn about planning, about resource management, about protection of the campus community? Um, and how do we see this moment as a change moment um, for how we are doing our work. I asked our senior staff, we're in strategic planning again right now, we're always doing strategic planning. And I asked them three things. What did we learn from this crisis? What do we leave behind and what do we take forward? And it's very interesting, everything from traditional course scheduling is not gonna happen anymore. We're gonna be more flexible. There's gonna be a lot more asynchronous learning. We're not gonna be tied to uh, the kind of semesters we've been tied to. Uh, we learned that. We learned, you know, uh, having everybody in every office every day, six days a week is just not gonna work anymore. Um, so we've learned how to do remote work. Um, same with students. Students have learned they can take some online, some, you know, it, you just learn these things and then you say, okay, what part of this works for the future and what should we plan on keeping so that um, even as we ease out of the pandemic era in another year or two, uh, we will be going forward. Um, I truly believe that the uh, online environment is a permanent piece of all of our lives. And so embracing that and not being afraid of it without losing the high touch, high feel environment of the small college campus, um, that's what we're planning around right now. That's great. Um, so I want to slightly shift it in that um, you've long been known to be an advocate for low income first generation students of color, uh, vulnerable students in particular, uh, you, you've given a lot of voice to. But right now, things are even worse. And I'm just wondering if you are seeing any windows of opportunity for us to not lose ground mm -hmm. on the equity gaps that we are all even more aware of uh, in this in the midst of the pandemic, or if you have any message for other institutional leaders about how you're finding ways to better serve your vulnerable students. Yes, um, and thank you for asking. Um, first of all, I am delighted to say that at Trinity, our enrollment is up this fall, uh, and it's up among exactly the, the population of uh, low-income Black and Brown students 
um, who see being in college as a very important part of their future and their future ability to be economically secure. Um, our students couldn't wait to get back to school. So um, we we are countercultural to the report that came out earlier uh, saying that um, low-income students of color were not returning to college. In Trinity's case, they are. Now, why is that? Well, I think one of the reasons that is for, for Trinity, at least, we take care of our students really, really well. And we take care of them academically and socially and personally and also financially. Um, we have a big stake in helping our students uh, with both traditional financial aid. We have a pretty significant emergency grants program. Um, we try to figure out where every student is at, what she needs, and then we try to deliver that in the best way possible. Um, I should mention we just this week launched uh, a program called Trinity Dare, Driving Actions for Racial Equity. And this is the other piece of our environment. Um, we don't have a lot of uh, uh, colloquia and symposia where we just sit around and talk. Trinity is a place that believes in action. We got that from the nuns who founded the place 120 years ago. Act, make justice happen. Social justice is our mantra from our Catholic faith tradition. We, we are ecumenical. We welcome all faiths. But how we put our belief into action, particularly for racial and gender equity, uh, is to provide the means for women who have been on the margins of our society to be able to come into college, to learn how to be successful, and then to get on career pathways where they will make a difference. So one of the main goals of the Trinity DARE program is to develop employer support uh, where we will widen the career pipelines for our students so they can enter professions where uh, black and Hispanic women have not been well represented in the past. We have our eye on, on all the traditional STEM disciplines. We have our eye on, on um, uh, disciplines such as, as information technology. Amazon is moving to Washington and we want our Trinity students to be front and center in the new Amazon workforce. Why not? But not just in terms of of entry-level jobs, we're talking about decision-making jobs. That's what Trinity has done for a century, and that's what we want our students to be able to do. We consider that to be equity. Now, one of the ways to reach um, a, a better level of racial equity is to be able to reduce the student loan debt burden. This is one of the biggest problems. Black women in this country have the highest student loan debt burden. That's our student body. So part of our Trinity DARE program will be to raise significant sums of money in order to reduce loans in the student financial aid packages replaced with more grants so that our students can graduate close to being debt free and be able to pursue the professions uh, that um, really should be open to them uh, without financial worries. Um, this program will require more mentoring, uh, more career opportunities uh, and other kinds of supports um, that we already give, but it's a way of organizing it. I think it's really important and my advice to every college president is you have to speak out loud about racial equity, but you can't just have gab fests. You have to know what you're gonna do about it and one of the ways we can do something about it is to address this problem of, of debt burden for black students and particularly for black women and Hispanic women in this country. So that's what Trinity's trying to do. Wonderful. And we're getting some comments from folks. Kristen Tusi, hi, uh, talking about how wonderful you are. And also we have Ann Polly uh, flagging some great conversation here. So you've got fans and they're in the house. 
Thank you. Hello, everybody. Thank you for your kind comments. I appreciate it. <laughs> now, um, I, I want to ask you about something that isn't directly or isn't related to the pandemic. Um, it's actually related to the election. I think I saw it recently reported that you signed on to an open letter urging Catholic voters to oppose President Trump um, because, uh, uh, in part, he flouts core values at the heart of Catholic social teaching. We don't necessarily need to go into the details of the letter as much as I'm interested in in why you thought that was important to do. That is a stance that um, many college and university presidents are not willing to take publicly. It's a stance that not all Catholic leaders have been willing to talk about. So so what what was behind that that letter, if I saw it reported correctly? Well, first of all, I, I have uh, long been critical of, of my brother and sister presidents for not using our leadership positions to be more forthright about speaking out about the issues of the day. Um, I think we must speak out about the issues. I think that is uh, in our scope of responsibility. And we speak out about issues that affect our faculty and students and, frankly, our mission. I think at this point the mission of higher education is in grave danger. And I think if we don't speak up and speak out uh, to defend our freedom as institutions, I think uh, it's going to evaporate. In terms of the letter with religious leaders, um, and I say this as, as a committed Catholic, um, I cannot stand idly by and watch um, this administration put children in cages, terrorize my DACA students. Um, what's happening to uh, our undocumented students is just shameful, uh, the level of stress and fear they're living in. Even after the Supreme Court uh, uh, ruled in their favor, still they feel harassed and intimidated. Uh, I can't stand idly, idly by while this administration uh, approves and, and carries out federal executions. We haven't had executions for 20 years. This administration that claims to be so pro-life is absolutely the antithesis of being pro-life. This is not just about abortion politics, and we could go into a long discussion of abortion politics, uh, you know, but the Catholic bishops say um, that we have to form conscience about how to make political choices. The Catholic bishops do not dictate who to vote for, but they say you have to vote in conscience. And if we're looking for uh, a candidate who undermines most of our teaching, uh, that is the current administration and, and its leader, President Trump, um, are absolutely doing things that harm life, that harm people, that are inhumane uh, to our society and that are fragmenting our society terribly. I think it's a grave danger. I also think I'm in pretty good company uh, uh, among both religious and Catholic leaders on this topic. Uh, even Cardinal Tobin came out the other day uh, in favor uh, of um, uh, saying that, that you know, President Trump is taking us down the wrong path. We have to say this out loud. We can't play games about it. There's too much at stake. While we're on the topic of, of the feds, um, what would you like to see the federal government doing specifically for colleges and universities at this moment in time? What should the Department of Education be doing to help institutions like yours? Well, that's a tall order at this point. Um, the first thing I would like to uh, see Betsy DeVos, the, the Secretary of Education, do, along with the department, is back off Princeton. Uh, Princeton uh, honestly said that it had had uh, racist elements in its history and even up till today. That's a bold and courageous statement for Princeton to make. And how dare the Department of Education use that to launch an investigation into whether Princeton is complying with federal civil rights laws. That is just intimidation and an effort to get all of us to back off of our racial equity positions, which, which is just wrong. It's another piece 
of, of the corrupt way this administration deals with moral issues. Um, in addition to that, I would like to see this administration uh, understand that upholding some of the uh, more traditional rules about quality assurance are important. Um, and I think, unfortunately, accreditation has been watered down a great deal. I know accreditation was problematic for people before. I do a lot of accreditation work as a volunteer. Um, but recently I sat in on a, a middle states meeting and, and I realized that now uh, the rules have become so loose that the accreditors are going after business all over the country and around the world and less focused on their primary mission, which is the quality assurance for the schools in what used to be regions that no longer exist. Um, I don't see this as enhancing quality and integrity. I see this as creating business lines uh, that will be profitable for the agencies, uh, but not necessarily helpful to higher education. Um, the third thing I would love to see the department do is actually speak up and speak to Congress about the need to improve Pell Grants. Um, the department well knows that Pell Grants are, are underfunded at this point uh, in terms of the value of Pell Grant in a student's package. Um, if we really want to do something for low-income students in this country, the Pell Grant would come into line with the real cost of going to college. And that's not just tuition support, that's also the support um, for the total cost of attendance. And we're not there yet. So those are just three ideas off the top. So I have a question, which is just, you know, as everyone is having a challenging time um, getting through life right now, I'm wondering in the midst of you sitting in the vantage point that you do, uh, trying to lead people, uh, new changes every week, really challenging position there where you're sitting in DC. I'm just wondering what you're optimistic about. What gives you hope and optimism right now? And if there are any any words of wisdom or advice that you can offer to the folks at home, um, so that we can we can just leave knowing that there is still possibility in front of us. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the advantages of being a long-serving president. Um, one of uh, I was on a call with other presidents the other day, and I was called an elder stateswoman. I never thought of myself. I used to be the youngest president. So, um, but longevity gives you perspective that no matter how bad it is today, there is a cycle of history. I believe in cycles of history, uh, and I believe we can and will work through this. Uh, will it get worse before it gets better? Well, we'll know more on November 4th, won't we? But um, the fact is we have to keep at it and keep working through uh, this moment and not give up hope. And we have to, those of us who are by disposition, optimistic, hopeful people have to bring along others who who uh, are, are not optimistic. Um, we have to keep hope in our society. Um, the second way, the way I keep hope and, and keep my sanity is um, we do have to take care of ourselves, even as we're trying to take care of everybody else. I mentioned earlier, I have a little hobby in wildlife photography. Um, I was out on the eastern shore of Maryland just this weekend um, talking to the birds, the eagles and the herons and all. Um, do something. I would say to every president, every leader, do something. Get out in nature if you can or do whatever makes you happy. Um, but take at least an afternoon once a week um, to take care of yourself and attend to those things um, because we as leaders have to stay optimistic. I believe that optimism is a responsibility of leadership and the ability to bring along others who have little faith in the future. If we don't have faith in the future, what are we going to do? We may as well shut the front door and never get out of bed in the morning. Um, that's ridiculous. Um, our work in higher education is work that supposedly is to make our society better. 
um, and to uh, create a future that is even more progressive and more hopeful than, than the past. Um, that is fundamentally what we must do. And we have to give voice to that every day in every way possible. And that's what I try to do. Thank you so much, President McGuire, for continuing to be such a bold leader, especially during a time when uh, I think a lot of folks would love to be retired, if anything. Um, so anyone who sticks around right now, I'm just like, yes, bless your heart. Um, we are hearing comments from folks at home asking about how they could access this episode. All uh, past episodes are on the UIA's uh, YouTube channel under the Weekly Wisdom playlist, but also now on Inside Higher Ed's Facebook page. You can access and download the video there and also on their Paris channel. So, um, well, we're just so grateful for you giving us a bit of, uh, of your perspective and a reminder to just keep on keeping on in these difficult times. So thank you so much for the time and for Rick being a great co-host per usual. And for everyone at home, we hope this gave you a little bit of inspiration and hope. And next week we will see uh, the chancellor of the University of California, Riverside, Kim Wilcox will be our guest. So Good. see you next week. Same time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Thanks.